The title for today's talk is The Lure of the Frames of Reference. Now, what do I mean by the frames of reference? Dictionary offers, a, I think, quite an appropriate description of the meaning. So it's a stru structure of concepts, values, values, customs, views, etc., by which we perceive the world. Now, here I need to offer a, a little footnote. Some of you who may be into reading uh, books about Buddhism may be familiar with Tanisaro Bhikkhu, um, quite an outstanding interpreter of the Buddha and translator. And uh, he idiosyncratically, perhaps, has chosen to use this expression, frames of reference, as a translation to what most other people, including myself, translate as foundations of mindfulness. So I, I need to mention this. When I talk about frames of reference, I do not mean foundations of mindfulness. Okay. I mean, in fact, what the dictionary says, namely structure of concepts, values, customs, views, etc., by which we perceive the world. Still, this may be a bit too theoretically, and I think it's best to describe the meaning of frames of reference with examples. One of the most pervasive frames of reference in our life that we use all the time is fact that we carry it with us. This is uh, from a book uh, called Einstein's Dream. Whatever, here. Let me just read a few segments. There are those who live by mechanical time. They rise at 7 o'clock in the morning, heaven forbid. They eat the lunch at noon and the supper at 6. They arrive at their appointments on time, precisely by the clock. They make love between 8 and 10 at night. They work 40 hours a week. Read the Sunday papers on Sunday, play chess on Tuesday night, chess on Tuesday night. When the stomach growls, they look at the watch to see if it's time to eat. When they begin to lose themselves in a concert, they look at the clock above the stage to see when will it be time to go home. This book, by the way, is set in Switzerland. <laughs> One cannot walk down an avenue, converse with a friend, enter a building, browse between the sandstone arches of the old arcade without meeting an instrument of time. 
time is visible in all places. Clock towers, wristwatches, church bells divide years into months, months into days, days into hours. Hours into seconds. Each increment of time marching after the other in perfect succession. And beyond any particular clock, a vast scaffold of time stretching across the universe lays down the law of time equally for all. In this world, a second is a second is a second. Time paces forward with exquisite regularity at precisely the same velocity in every corner of space. Time is an infinite ruler. Time is absolute. A world in which time is absolute is a world of consolation. For while the movements of people are unpredictable, the movement of time is predictable. While people can be doubted, time cannot be doubted. While people brood, time skips ahead without looking back. In the coffee houses, in the government buildings, in boats on Lake Geneva, people look at the watches and take refuge in time. Each person knows that somewhere is recorded the moment she was born, the moment she took her first step, the moment on her f of her first passion, the moment she said goodbye to her parents. As I said, this is said in Switzerland. I, I remember maybe 20 years ago or so, but I still remember going through Switzerland, going to a train station asking for what time does the next train leave from wherever it was, Zurich, I think, to wherever I was going. And um, the guy tells me whatever the time was, 4.30, say. And I looked at the clock behind him. There was a clock behind him, obviously, being Switzerland. And it was exactly 4.30. And I asked for him, has the, time, the, the train left? And he turns around, looks at the time, and he says, yes, it has left. <laughs> for me, him, it was so obvious. For me, it didn't make sense. <laughs> so I rushed to the platform. And sure enough, uh, the train was just... I just left, exactly. Reassuring, yes. But of course, this is not restricted to the Swiss. I catch myself doing these games with time too. Every day, in case you're interested, I take a nap. And I tend to time the nap precisely. Half an hour. You don't have to do that. I'm not a busy person to have to do that. But it does provide the structure. Yeah. And my day, which is pretty amorphous, it provides a structure. The only redeeming feature to that is that 
then I laugh at myself for doing it. The problem is really with the internalizing of time, not with the using time, with the internalizing of time, which is, as, as uh, the reading said, often the cover for being absent. Turn up right here, just check it out when the mind becomes eager about the, the timing of the end of the sit. When is it blasted, gone, whatever, bell going to ring? A little more from that book. It's called Einstein's Dream because it has to do with the relativity of time. I find it. In a linen shop in Arthausgasse Street, a woman talks with her friend. She has just lost her job. For 20 years, she worked as a clerk at the Bundeshaus recording debates. She has supported her family. Now, with her daughter still in school and her husband who spends two hours each more morning in the toilet, she has been fired. Her administrator, a heavily old and grotesque lady, came one morning and told her to clear her desk by the following day. The friend in the shop listens quietly. Neatly falls the tablecloth she has perched us, picks lint of the sweater of the woman who had just lost her job. The two friends agree to meet for tea at 10 o'clock the next morning. 10 o'clock. 17 hours and 53 minutes from this moment. The woman who has just lost her job smiles for the first time. In her mind, she imagines the clock on the wall in her kitchen ticking off each second between now and tomorrow at 10. Without interruption, without consultation. And a similar clock in the home of her friend synchronized. At 20 minutes to 10 tomorrow morning, the woman will put on her scarf and her gloves and her coat and walk down the Schieflaube as a needed bridge and on the job and, and onto the shop, tea shop on post case. That's one pervasive frame. But of course, it's not the only one. We use many. Another component of this structure, this scaffolding that we provide for our life, this system of frames of reference, is our resume. 
that's to say an edited historical account of our life. Internalize. It becomes an account of who we think we are. For some, the resume is a list of career accomplishments. Useful, surely, for the professional world. But also try to try to convince ourselves how great we are. I don't say this lightly. In fact, uh, I am um, used to be a scientist, as you probably know by now, and um, often enough had to copy my CV, my curriculum features, and I looked at it, and and there was some glow in me and looking at, hey, I did this, I did that, and there was a, a reward to my sense of who I thought I was. Obviously the failures were not there, not the successes. For others, the resume may be in the form of a scrapbook, or a photo album. A simulacrum, again, of who we think we are. Possibly including smiling photographs from the darkest periods in our lives. So, is our resume to time, resume, all connected. And, and this connected with history in general, too. Because somehow our resume stands, our lifespan, if you wish, stands suspended as a key reference for the framing of history. You know, I, I was born in 1926, and yeah, I look at the, the account of events before 1926 on a different light from the account of events happening later. And check it out. It probably happens to all of us. There's a different flavor to it. No matter whether I, you witness those events before your birth or not. This is understandable, given the pervasiveness of frame, frames of reference, and yes, our self-centeredness. And then, at times, we project, we think of what the world will be like after we are gone. Not that we like to go there, but sometimes, for some reason, we go there. And it does have a very different flavor 
from the world before we were born. Mind you, it makes absolutely no sense historically, but that's the way we see the world through our own frame of reference. In this case, a frame of reference of the centrality of the eye. It's not always the eye, a separate eye that stands up. At times, the, this character, call it the eye, the ego, becomes consolidated with, with other characters. Somebody has just recently noticed causes the wego instead of the ego. A projection of the I onto a family, into a community, into a country, whatever. I, I do remember in the 80s, and I've said this before, forgive me if you heard me say, in the 80s I lived on the west side, near the west side highway, but there are some piers there. And, and every day at some time that I've forgotten, it's again, five o'clock. It was this guy who went to the end of the pier. This was a vacant pier, not open, but he sneaked in somehow. And he started to pontificate, to make a big speech to the waves of the river. And he did that. Don't know what he said. Nobody knows what he said. But he did that wrapped in the American flag. This is long before all this patriotic frenzy that we are into today. It was remarkable. It was his. He became the country. But of course, we cannot do the ego in any way. The ego, the ego, or the ego in any way, without using it as a frame to separate us from the others. Of course, that's our whole point. Me, distinct from the other. Us, distinct from them. One, one last. I think cannot be ignored. Example of frames of reference that we use. We use ideas as frames of reference. And when when they consolidate they become ideologies. Interesting this ideology sometimes can be very blunt, very skating. But uh, there are also very subtle ones. And one subtle one that I want to mention today is an ideology that can be constructed even around emptiness. There was a, a recent article in whatever it was in Buddha Dharma this month, in fact, 
about that from somebody called Judy Smith-Brown. Here's what she says about emptiness. What is meant by the Sanskrit word sunyata, usually translated as emptiness? Sunyata is a pedagogical term that points to the futility of the concept of concepts to accurately express the true nature of reality. Humans are conventionally ensnared by a conceptual approach. And these concepts blind us to the unfettered, brilliant qualities of experience. It is conventionally unimaginable to move beyond these concepts, for they condition every moment of our lives and shape our senses, sense of identity, our relationships, our emotions, our sense perceptions, our very dreams. In other words, what I've been calling frames of reference here. Most attempts to point out the binding nature of our conceptual landscape merely intensifies our concepts as we grow to fit every spiritual teaching in our previously devised categories. Eh? We fall for that. At least I do. Nihilism is said to be particularly challenging on the path. The most dangerous kind of nihilism is the one that conceptualizes emptiness. And the great gurus of the traditions always targeted this as problematic. Nagarjuna is a great Buddhist philosopher of the third century Indian said, emptiness will liberate one from all conceptual views, but those who conceptualize emptiness will fail to realize liberation. In other words, emptiness is merely a designating word. It is not in itself anything, any thought, or any phenomena that can be conceptualize. And insofar as we conceptualize emptiness, we will find only painful dead ends. So, all these frames of reference can be problematic. Not because of what they specify. Surely, I'm all for emptiness, if I put it simply. Not that there's anything wrong with emptiness. It's the problem is clinging to it and turning it into a frame of reference that is clingable. Because in our attachment, we, we keep ourselves from diving into a world that is free, call it free-floating, not rigid. When there is no attachment, 
when there is no addiction to the frame of reference, surely we can use the frame of references while holding them loosely. What do I mean by holding loosely? Let me once again go down a, a list of frames of reference and see what uh, comes up. Consider the frame of time. Surely it can be most helpful. We have to meet a friend. We have an appointment. We must punch in at work, some of us. Some in the group might still do, still do that. We, we want to come to this retreat or to this talk. Yes, there's a clock there ticking and asking you and Raquel even with a, not to blame you because <laughs> with the bells reminding us. But none of this requires that we transform time into the underpinning of your lives. None of this requires that we become time-maholic, if, if you wish. And, and much the same thing can be said for all the other frames of references. They are useful under a variety of circumstances, but if we cling, we let them imprison us. Take our resume, for instance. Surely, CV is very useful if you want to get a job. Um, surely, um, a scrapbook or photo album are a great opportunities to have a, a direct experience of change. Of course, or for whatever reason. Oh, we want to remember how so-and-so looked like. Why not? Oh, we want to amaze ourselves as how silly we used to look, or how beautiful we used to look. <laughs> but there's no need to internalize it. The moment we use any of these items to construct with what who we are, we fall into the trap. The Buddha, by the way, who had a lot of things to say about lots of things, spells this out very clearly. In, in, he's talking about things that are worth, that are, he says, fit to attention or not fit to attention. And there he lists the what I've been calling the inner resume. He says, he's talking about how one can attend unwisely. He says, it is to attend unwisely to ask, was I in the past? Was I not in the past? What was I in the past? How was I in the past? Having me what what did I become in the past? Shall I be in the future? Shall I not be in the future? 
What shall I be in the future? How shall I be in the future? Having been what, what shall I become in the future? Or else, he or she is inwardly perplexed about the present in this way. Am I? Am I not? What am I? How am I? Where has this being come from? Where will it go? Not where our attention needs to be focused, focused in. In the same vein, I talked about uh, lifespan and using our lifespan to frame history. And, and it is interesting to see ourselves do that. Not to, to take the symmetry of history that our lifetime creates in earnest, but on the contrary, to get a glimpse of this sense of relativity that emerges from discovering how we look at things differently before and after our birth. Gradually, the more we, we penetrate these constructions, the more we might be able to receive birth and death in the same way. I also talked about the, what I call the wego, the sense of ourselves versus others. Hold it loosely, of course there is a sense, yes, I mean, there, there is a different experience. I experience life in one way and, and Raquel experiences it differently, sure. Um, recognizing that, but but not to create a frame of separation in any way. And on this topic, there's a little story I can't uh, resist telling. Um, I think it was somewhere in, in the 80s. It's a long time ago. Uh, in the 80s, I went to, with Raquel, of course, to an art exhibit at the DIA Art Foundation in, in Chelsea. Now DIA is in Beacon, too, it's in many places. At the time, it was only in Chelsea that I know of. And it was a conceptual show, and I looked at strange stuff, as you can imagine. And then I had to pee at some point, so I asked for directions to go to the bathroom. And I, when I got there, I was confronted with two doors. One said us, the other said them. <laughs> Lovely. 
Sorry, I can't remember which I went. <laughs> just to go over the last item, just, just not to, to end this talk, leaving the impression that I am against having ideas, quite the contrary. As my teacher Christopher is fond of saying, you know, the practice is not a lobotomy. <laughs> Ideas are indeed a rich nourishment. The only thing is, do we consolidate them in the rigid ideology? Uh, are we open to discover whatever the world of ideas can offer us? So, can we, indeed, in all respects, with respect to time, to uh, our resume, our looks, our ideas, can we drop the uh, habitual ways of measuring and framing things? Can we drop the habitual yardstick? Yardsticks. Then, and only then, will we have access to that which is unfathomable. I have more to say about this tomorrow. It's just... I know, I have a still to share a poem with you. Whoops, whoops. As you might imagine, by Mary Oliver, of course. If I find her. Yeah, there she is. entitled Everything. I want to make poems that say right out plainly what I mean. That don't go looking for the laces of elaboration puffed sleeves. I want to keep close and use often words like heavy, heart, joy, soon, and to cherish the question mark on her bold sister, the dash. I want to write with quiet hands. I want to write while crossing the fields that are fresh with daisies and everlasting and the ordinary grass. I want to make poems while thinking of the bread of heaven and the cup of astonishment. Let them be songs in which nothing is neglected, not a hope, not a promise. I want to make poems that look into the earth and the heavens and see the unseeable. I want them to honor both the heart of faith 
and the light of the world. The gladness that says without any word everything. Let's sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.